This is episode 10 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today, our topics include controlling rodent and disease vectors, growing vegetables in pots, to prep or not to prep, and then because it's Friday, we're pulling one from the archive, uh, how to use pull shock to purify water. Hey, my name is Todd Sepulveda. I'm the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Let's get started. Our first article comes to us from DoomandBloom.com, or I'm sorry, DoomandBloom.net, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, and just the, the title of the article is How to Control Rodents as Disease Vectors. And it's just very interesting. Um, I think it's important, something that we're going to be dealing with. Um, you know, if there was ever a grid down situation or um, if we were ever in a, you know, a long term SHTF situation. And uh, I, I think they talk about some important things here. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. In survival settings, it's been said that rats will do a better job of surviving than humans. Rats, mice, and other rodents are well-known causes of zoonotic infection. A zoonotic disease is one that can be transmitted from animals to humans. The animal in question may may not have symptoms of the disease itself, but may serve as a vector, that is, it carries the, the disease to a human target. Rats and mice belong to the order Rodentia, from the Latin word rodere to gnaw. Okay, you know, hold on, time out. Uh, I, I kill myself when I read uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's uh, articles because it's all the medical and they got Latin words. I mean, they're killing me, right? So you just got to excuse excuse the, the mispronunciations. Anyway, all right. So just uh, just forgive me there. All right. This order contains various families, including beavers, porcupines, squirrels, and gophers. As you are unlikely to have an infestation of beavers in your home, we'll concentrate on rats and mice. Uh, as pair, a pair of rats could produce 1,500 offspring in one year if they all reproduced. Most rats and mice that cause issues for humans come from the Old World. These include brown rats, also called Norway rats, Although they didn't originate there, Norway has no more rat issues than other countries. Brown rats may reach 16 inches, including the tail, and are good swimmers. The term sewer rat was coined for them. Black rats, thought to have introduced the plague to Europe through their fleas. The black rat, also called the roof rat, is slightly smaller than its brown cousin and is an excellent climber. House mice... Used to living in close quarters with humans, mice are nibblers and can can contaminate an entire pantry by taking a few bites out of multiple food items. Mice and other rodents can also chew through electrical wiring, thereby constituting a fire hazard. Rats and mice are some of the world's most evasive species. Every year, a percentage of the world's food supply is contaminated by their droppings, urine, and hair. These items, known as fomites, may contain disease-carrying organisms and, as such, render food unfit for human consumption. Before I go further, let me tell our readers who have rats and mice as pets that they, the pets, not necessarily the owners, are generally clean, intelligent creatures. I have had the privilege of working with them in university laboratories as a student. Despite this, it is indisputable that the diseases that they may carry are cause for concern. Medical issues caused by rodents. From a medical perspective, what diseases might one contract from a rodent or its droppings? These include plague. The plague is caused by a bacterium known as Yersinia pestis. It is carried by fleas. The black rat's arrival in Europe in the Middle Ages, and with it its fleas, caused pandemics of the disease that wiped out a third of the population. Even today, plague exists in developing countries and there have been hundreds of cases in the U.S. over the past three decades. Hantavirus. Hantavirus transmitted by mice in urine, droppings, or saliva causes a serious lung disease that may become fatal without the availability, availability of intense care. Lepso, uh, <laughs> Leptocyparis. 
caused by consuming food contaminated by rat urine. Leptospirosis causes a flu-like syndrome that progresses to kidney and liver failure if untreated. The disease can also be carried by certain livestock. All right. Oh, here come here come the words. Right, lymphocytic uh, chorio-meningitis virus or LCMV may be contracted from mice urine or droppings, or from pets in contact with mice, such as hamsters. It causes a flu-like syndrome that occasionally causes complications in the nervous system, especially in people with weakened immune systems or pregnant women. LCMV may cause miscarriage or birth defects. Salmonellasis. Infection with the bacteria Salmonella may occur as a result of handling of pet, rat or mi- pet rats or mice, especially if they have had diarrhea. It causes severe diarrhea disease in humans and is one good reason for owners of rats and mice to wash their hands after handling. Rat bite fever. Infection with the bacterium Streptobacillus occurs from rat bites and scratches or from ingesting food or water contaminated with rat droppings. Abrupt onset of fever, rashes, vomiting, and headaches are noted at first with general deterioration afterwards. If untreated, there is a 10% death rate. Rodent-proofing a a retreat. It's simply common sense to take measures to prevent rodent infestation in the home and to eliminate those already there. Once an infestation has occurred, much more effort is required to dislodge these unwanted guests. Rodent-proofing a home requires careful evaluation for points of entry from the level of the foundation to the roof line. This includes sewer lines, bathroom vents, pipes and gutters, doors and windows, and vegetation near concrete slabs. Some rodent-proofing techniques for homes include sealing cracks in building foundations, walls, siding, and roof joints with, for example, mesh hardware cloth or concrete patching. Rodents only need a fourth inch or quarter inch of opening to gnaw their way into your home. Metal mesh scouring pads or galvanized window screening, not steel wool which quickly deteriorates, may be stuffed into crevices as a temporary solution. Installing vent guards in bathrooms or washer dryer vents. Placing barriers to prevent climbing rodents from going up pipes or gutters. Trimming trees so that branches don't come close to the roof. Contacting the utility company for strategies to prevent rats from traveling along power lines to your house. Preventing rodents, especially rats, from tunneling under the foundation by placing flat concrete pavers or gravel for the first three feet from the base of the house. Rodent control also involves careful attention to both indoor and outdoor sanitation. Here are some suggestions for the wise homeowner. Never leave food or water out overnight. Keep your countertop clean and disinfected. Bed Bread boxes may seem old-fashioned, but they are there for a reason, to keep the bread away from rats and mice. Never leave pet food outside. Clean all bowls daily, whether they are used inside or out. Rodents love to eat dog and cat food. Clean under kitchen appliances. Even a few crumbs will make a meal for a mouse or a rat. Keep garbage disposal in sinks clean with a cup of bleach once a month. Never flush grease down the sink drain. Keep toilet lids down until needed. Store dry foods, even pet foods, in sealed containers at least 18 inches off the floor. Construct barriers around birdhouses and bird feeders to prevent seed from being accessible to rodents. Remove any fruit or vegetables from your garden that you won't use. Keep garbage can lids tightly closed. Keep the side and backyard free of debris that might serve as shelters. Deny access to water by fixing leaky faucets. Avoid putting animal products in your compost bin. Identifying infestation. So there's a nice little graphic here uh, of uh, feet tracks or feet, uh, I'm sorry, of rat or mice tracks or their feet. Um, I'm sorry, not their feet, their droppings. Uh, Sorry. Uh, So the Norway rat and the roof rat and the house mouse uh, rodent droppings are there. Um, If you're not sure that your home is currently rodent free, you might consider looking for any partially eaten food, gnawed containers, or nesting material. Inspecting your home's interior at night with a flashlight, look especially close at the bases of walls as rats and mice prefer to travel along them. Little used areas of the home should be especially targeted. Looking for rodent droppings, mice and rat defecate 50 times a day. If they are in your home, you should be able to find their feces along floorboards, in attic crawl spaces, and in basements. 
setting out a thin layer of flour or talcum powder by areas through which rats and mice might enter your home. Place some as well along floorboards. Rodents prefer to travel along walls. The rodents will leave tracks which will prove their presence. Having cats and dogs as mousers, they may or may not be efficient, but they usually will alert you when a rodent is near. Listening for squeaking and scrabbling noises inside walls at night. Check for unusual smells. There is a lot of there are a lot of rats in your home. You may notice an odor from their urine. Eliminating the problem. Once you have made the determination that you have rats or mice in your home, it's time to reduce the population. It should be noted that long-term control will be difficult if you haven't followed my earlier suggestions for indoor and outdoor sanitation. There are a myriad mouse and rat traps on the market and a number of poisonous poisons available to kill rodent invaders. It makes more sense to use traps, in my opinion, as poisons may leave you with a bunch of dead, rotting animals inside your walls. The stench may last a month or more, and sometimes deodorizer is needed to be inserted through a hole drilled in the wall. If you have lots of rats in your yard, you shouldn't use poisons, as they may be ingested by neighborhood pets or even children. You should, however, consider trapping boxes. These can be snap traps, electronic zappers, glue traps, or even catch-and-release versions. Both rats and mice will readily go for a small amount of fresh peanut butter as bait. Advice to the soft-hearted. Brown rats, black rats, and house mice are not native wildlife. Besides other damage, some will cause casualties among endangered songbird eggs and young if released. Glue traps are popular but controversial. They are better weapons against mice than rats. Unfortunately, they usually leave you with a live animal to kill. If you must use them, euthanize the rodent by throwing the trapping animal in a bucket of water or by striking it with a stick several times just behind the head. Another disadvantage of the glue trap is that it loses effectiveness in dusty areas or in extreme temperatures. Snap traps should always be placed in perpendicular fashion with the bait side against the wall. Never use just one trap. Place a number of them several feet apart in the rodent's usual path. Traps can be fastened to pipes with wire or thick rubber bands. When cleaning out a building that has been infested with rats or mice, specific safety precautions should be followed to avoid infection. First and foremost, remember that you should never handle a wild rodent, alive or dead, without disposable gloves. Masks should be worn when cleaning. Other steps to follow. Open windows and doors before cleaning to allow it to air out, then leave for an hour. Avoid raising dust if at all possible. Steam clean all carpeting and upholstery. Clean all surfaces with a diluted bleach solution or other household disinfectant, soaking areas that held dead animals, nests, or droppings. Wash all bedding, linens, pillows, etc., and use the high heat setting on your dryer. Eliminate any insulation material contaminated by rodent urine, feces, or nesting material. As ultraviolet light can kill viruses, place contaminated items that cannot be thrown away, such as important documents, outside in the sun for several hours. If this isn't possible, quarantine the items for a week in a rodent-free area. This should give enough time for viruses to be inactivated. Dispose of any contaminated items or dead rodents in a plastic bag and then place them in an exterior garbage can. Thoroughly wash hands and clean. Uh, I'm sorry, thoroughly wash hands after cleaning. Consider showering with soap and hot water. We share our world with many other creatures. Some of these creatures invade our homes and can damage our possessions and more importantly our health. With careful attention to sanitation and the occasional surgical strike, we can eliminate unwanted guests and make our homes safe environments for our families okay two uh two stories kind of come to mind uh, as i was reading this one when i was a kid my dad owned some property in east texas and uh one day we were outside and the neighbor had come and we always loved having this neighbor come he had this great dog this black lab and called him pepper and uh i, I was a young kid and dad was on the tractor and he was cutting the grass and the the neighbor was there and all of a sudden I saw this neighbor take off and he was he was older I mean he was married had kids and stuff but I just see him take off and he is just stomping on the ground like crazy and um I'm just kind of freaking out because this guy moves so fast but then he was stomping on the ground and I know that there had been times where uh there were rabbits in the in the uh in the field and I'm just wondering, man, what is he killing? What is he stomping on? So I go over there, 
and uh, it was rats. And he was just like, man, you want to kill these? You want to get rid of them uh, anytime you can because they get into your house and they make a mess. And and so, um, you know, he was very, he wasn't even in in his yard or his field, but he was still running after them and, and taking care of them. There's also a story that I remember about the the the, the black plague when it was in Europe. Um, a lot of people believed, and if the story is correct, a lot of people believed that uh, the the plague was uh, punishment or was brought on by the Jews, because the Jews, for some reason, did not have weren't weren't plagued or weren't dying off like everybody else was dying off, and uh, you know they didn't have that proper sanitation. They weren't thinking about all those kinds of things. They didn't realize that it was the rats that were that were bringing all these diseases in. Um, the one difference, though, that the Jews had, and, and so like their neighborhoods, right? Um, Jews had a lot more cats than um, other people did, and so these cats would go after the rats and the mice and would kill them off before they could get in and reproduce and and um, you know cause a lot of damage and spread the disease. And so one of the things that you might I don't necessarily like cats. I'm not a, a cat person. But if there was ever a time where we were going into a situation where, um, you know, it was an SHTF situation, if I could, I would try to have a cat. Um, just because they would, you know, an old barnyard type cat that would stay outside and you take care of it. But, you know, they would take care of those little critters out there. So just uh, some food for thought. All right. So the next uh, article comes to us from Prepper's Will. And uh, the title of the article is Growing Vegetables in Pots, Choosing Plants that Thrive. I think this is important. I think everybody should try gardening. Um, even if you are in an apartment, you can have a tomato plant out on the patio or in the front, um, you know, if, if you can. But everyone should try something. I think it's, it's important. So anyway, let's go ahead and start reading this one. Maintaining a garden can be quite a challenge for the urban prepper. The lack of gardening space and arable land is a problem for most urban dwellers. However, you shouldn't give up on your dream of having homegrown vegetables. There are always solutions and growing vegetables and pots can be done wherever you live. Having a balcony, terrace, or even the roof of your building at your disposal will allow you to grow a variety of vegetables. There are quite many, quite many plants that will thrive in pots even in the smallest space. Growing vegetables in pots is a raising trend among urban preppers since all of them want to have fresh produce. When choosing the plants to grow in containers, there are a few considerations you should be aware of. Since not everyone is an expert gardener, I think it's better to list the basic requirements for growing vegetables in pots. Considerations to bear in mind when growing vegetables in pots. Choose the right variety for your pot. There are many varieties which have been bred to be slightly smaller than their traditional larger cousins. When planting your vegetable garden, select the types of vegetables that use words such as mini, compact, or dwarf in their description. The seed package should clearly state the type of crops you are expected to grow. Use good potting compost. As a personal recommendation, I advise you to use the best potting compost you can afford. Growing vegetables in pots means that the plants have access only to the soil or compost from their containers. Provide your plants with good quality compost for a successful garden. It will give them a good basis for which to thrive. Pay attention to the size of your pots. When growing vegetables in pots, the size of the pot is really important. Your plant needs to develop a proper root system to produce good yield. As a general rule, 8 to 12 inch pots are okay for most vegetables. However, some plants require bigger pots. Long root crops, regular taller pots, while wide bulbs or roots need larger containers. Pay attention to the watering schedule. Watering becomes a sensitive issue when growing vegetables in pots. The plants you grow in containers dry out quicker than the ones in the ground. Ensure you keep the soil moist if you don't want to compromise your crop. When inclement weather is forecast, make sure the soil is not prone to water logging. There are the, these are the basic rules to keep in mind for growing vegetables in pots. I've grown many plants in pots that I can tell you that it's not a complicated job. Everything goes smooth as long as you pay attention to what you're doing. Grooving vegetables in pots. I don't know if that was grooving or growing, but okay. Grooving vegetables in pots, the best varieties you can choose from. Salad, salad leaves. This crop is ideal for container growing, and there are many varieties you can choose from. 
There's something available for every growing condition. When growing vegetables in pots, loose leaf salad salads are preferred. They can be enjoyed as you cut the foliage when the plants are young and you can benefit from a second set of pickings. Most varieties are best sown in March and September. When growing salad in pots, pay attention to intense heat. The plants do not like too much heat and you need to provide shade for the pots. Recommend pot depth 6 to 12 inches. Tomatoes. When growing tomatoes in pots, tomatoes are considered the best starter crops. Tomatoes can be grown in tubs and grow bags, or you can go with one plant per 18-inch depth pot. You can start the seeds inside in March or April and then move them to containers as the seedlings develop. Varieties that produce all their crops at once will require small wire cages or stakes. I recommend growing Bush Celebrity or Early Girl if you want to try growing something different by growing tumbler tomatoes. This variety is great for hanging baskets or window boxes. Carrots. If you want to grow proper sized carrots in pots, you need to pick the right container for the job. The recommended pot depth for carrots is between 9 and 14 inches. Pay attention to the watering and don't let the soil dry out. When growing vegetables in pots, carrots are an ideal choice. They do not require a lot of work and there are a variety suited for every type of pot. You can grow nates, which are half long types, or parmex, which produce round bite sized carrots. Another suggestion would be to grow baby carrots such as minifinger. Beetroot. These vegetables thrive in tubs and you can plant the beet seeds in all directions for a full crop. As a general rule, 6 inches of depth is required for the pots or growing containers. Seedlings will emerge within 5 to 8 days when temperatures are between 50 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. I recommend going with round varieties such as regala. These are quite small when mature and you can harvest them young. They have a sweet and tender taste. Chilies. Many preppers and survivalists grow cayenne pepper in pots due to their multiple uses. Growing these vegetables in pots is one of the easiest ways to ensure you have a constant supply. You can even move the pots inside and outside depending on the weather. Your peppers will thrive no matter what. The recommended pot depth for peppers is 14 to 16 inches. You can grow one or two plants per pot. Try growing sweet peppers such as Ariane or giant macaroni. As for spicy ones, go with Nosfratu or Agi Crystal. Uh, I might have messed that one up. Sorry, guys. Zucchini. These are probably the most prolific crop you could grow in containers. When it comes to growing vegetables in pots, nothing will give you a bang for give you a bang for your buck like zucchini. This is a thirsty crop and it needs a lot of water to thrive. The soil around the base of the plant needs to be kept moist. Recommended pot depth for zucchini is 18 inches. If you plan to grow compact zucchini, choose varieties such as Midnight, Sunstripe, Geode, Raven, and 8-Ball. Potatoes. If you want to grow potatoes as part of your gardening project, you need 18 inches tall pots. Most often, potato, sorry, most often patio bags and containers are used for growing potatoes. Growing vegetables in pots is quite easy and the situation doesn't change for potatoes. Fill the container or bag with compost and plant your uh, chitted tuber into the dirt. Sow it in a depth of 3 to 6 inches with the shoot pointing upward. If you provide enough room for the tuber to develop, the plant should produce a good yield. Try growing varieties such as Red Pontiac or Yukon Gold. When it comes to growing vegetables in pots, these are are my most successful crops. They are just a selection of vegetables that can be grown in containers. You could also try growing crops such as peas, dwarf beans, onions, and herbs. Once you realize that growing vegetables in pots is quite easy, you will never stop experimenting. You can always discover more and more vegetable seeds that have been bred for container planting. All right, so a uh, good little article just uh, as, we are, as we're moving into uh, spring. I know, um, you know, being down here in uh, Houston, in Texas, you know, we've got perfect weather to go ahead and start our gardens. I know a lot of y'all still uh, have some crazy weather up north, but uh, definitely, you know, a lot of people are getting their gardens ready, planning, and um, getting ready to, to move out there. And so if you haven't, uh, if you're in a small space, you don't have a garden that you can uh, go out there and, and beds and things that you can, you know, sow some seed in or, or plant some garden or plant some uh, some plants in, uh, try try some containers and just um, it, it's not hard and you might find that you you really enjoy it and uh, you start seeing a, a yield. 
Alright, let's go ahead and go on to the next one. Hey, this one comes to us from survivalistprepper.net. And so it's uh, Dale and Lisa, and it's actually... Um, it's actually a podcast, so uh, I'm a podcast talking about a, another podcast, um, but they are, um, I, I recently did an article on uh, my personal um, website, edthatmatters.com, and uh, the title of, of it is Prepper Products, oh, I'm sorry, Prepper, uh, I'm still having issues talking, uh, Prepper Pot. <laughs> Prepper podcast for the preparedness community. And so uh, I share a few podcasts that I have on my podcast catcher and um, some of you know the, the preparedness ones that I listen to and then also other podcasts. Uh, I don't just listen to a Prepper podcast. Others that are, that are on my catcher that I listen to on a regular basis. And so Dell and Lisa's podcast is one that I do listen to. I don't listen to every podcast and I definitely look at the description and, and the title and see if it's something that I'm interested in and then I listen to it. But I recently just listened to this one and um, I wanted to, one of the things, and the, the reason that I'm even bringing this up is because Dale does a good job of, uh, he not only does the podcast, but he usually includes an article uh, with that podcast and where he's talking about some of the things that he's uh, talking about in the podcast. So I'm going to read this article and um and then uh, definitely link to it so you can go listen to it. But there's some things that I wanted to talk about specifically for this one here or the reason that I'm bringing up um, the archived um, article that, that I'm going to be talking right after this one. So uh, again, survivalistprepper.net. The title of this article and then podcast is To Prep or Not to Prep? Do You re Really Need That? And it's not necessarily talking about should we prepare or not prepare. It's more talking about specific items. So let me go ahead and start reading this one. The more you research prepping, the more you begin to see that even though the basics of preparedness are fairly simple, there are literally thousands of things you can buy. The dilemma comes in when we are deciding what to prep and what not to prep. This can be easily difficult when you first get interested in preparedness. The more you read, the bigger you must have your must-haves list gets. Pretty soon, the essentials like food and water are on the bottom of that list. We all fall for the shiny object now and then. I certainly do. And we can always rationalize needing one thing or another. The truth is, if we purchased everything we thought we needed or everything we wanted, we would need to rent out a warehouse. Since most of us don't have the money to rent a warehouse or our home would start to look like something from the hoarder's TV show. Eventually, we would have so much stuff that we wouldn't be able to find something we needed when we needed it. The same holds true for some of the prepping supplies that might be useful. Yes, having a year's supply of toilet paper would be great to have, but could the room you use to store it and the money you spend on it be used for more important supplies? And then um, this week, Lisa and I talk about some of these prepping supplies that we hear about all the time and how to decide if they fit into your preparedness plan. We have found this article on APN, American Preppers Network, that was written by Stephanie Doyle. She also has her blog, The Homefront, where she writes quite a bit about homesteading. In this article, Stephanie goes over some of the supplies she does not stockpile and explains why. Her list includes items like storing a year's worth of toilet paper, owning dogs for home security, and storing paper plates. A couple of the other ones stood out to me because they are somewhat controversial in the prepper community. Gold and silver. This is a hot topic in the prepper community with some good points on both sides of the argument. Stephanie made some good points about how investing in gold and silver is just that, an investment. If you need to get to your bug out location, what is going to be more valuable, an ounce of gold or a gallon of gas? Barter supplies. Another big topic in the preparedness community is bartering supplies. I can actually see how both sides of this argument are right. If you are preparing, you shouldn't need a barter, barter anything. On the other side of the coin, having supplies to barter with might get you out of, out of some tough, or some of, to get you out of some, uh, I guess, I guess he was saying some situations. Okay, um, and so. Uh, taking care of the basics first. I'm in the process of writing a beginner's prepping checklist and in that I talk about filtering out the noise and taking care of the basics before you tackle any of the bigger projects. While having all these other supplies and the survival skills are important, they mean nothing if we don't have food and water. Sometimes we, 
we overthink prepping a little bit and sometimes we just want to do the fun stuff and not the important stuff. I am guilty of this myself. Sometimes I have to remind myself that food is more important than a new fixed blade knife. Storing bulk foods fits into this category as well. Yes, having buckets of grain, rice, and beans is a great way to build your food storage, but if you don't know how to use it, you might as well wait until you do. For now, work on getting your food storage supply up to six months with pantry foods or even long-term dehydrated meals. Don't store it until you learn it. When we think about some of the disaster scenarios that are possible and how we would handle them, we can start traveling down a rabbit hole and forget about the important stuff. I love learning about bushcraft and how solar power works, but sometimes I need to reset my priorities. A large-scale solar setup can get pretty expensive. If I purchased everything I needed right now, it would probably sit in my garage until I figured out how to put everything together. I plan on doing some pressure canning this summer, but I need to do my homework first before I go out and spend money on stuff I think I need. When it comes to prepping, there are literally hundreds of things we need, uh, might need, or we justify needing. Sometimes these supplies come with the caveat of learning the skills before we need supplies. Pick your poison. When it comes to prepping, there are literally hundreds of things we need, might need, or we justify needing. There are only so much time in the, there's only so much time in the day, and if we put too much on our plate, we are bound to burn out. I think of this like spinning plates. The more plates we have in the air, the more likely everything will come crashing down. When I am learning something new about preparedness, I try to stay focused on that project. I call this just-in-time learning. This summer I plan on learning about pressure canning, so I need to try and not get distracted by something else I have to learn or something I just have to try. Do I need it or just really want it? To be honest, I fall for this on a daily basis, and I bet most of you do as well. Everywhere we look, there is someone trying to sell something that we really don't need, but we really want it. What I try to do is make myself wait. Usually, if you give yourself time to think about something rather than impulsively hitting the buy it now button, you think more rationally about it. This is the same principle grocery stores use as, as the checkout line. You really didn't need that bag of beef jerky, but it just looks so good. And that's a good strategy uh, that Dell was talking about there is just waiting a little bit. If there's something, just you know, wait a couple of days, wait, wait a week. If you still feel you need it, you want it, then go ahead and get it. Okay, so... Um, the reason the reason I brought this one up, so you definitely you want to go and like I say all the time, all these articles have links on them, and you want to go visit um, the websites because they have links that you want to go and 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 touch on, and and you know see where they're going, and they have uh, good information there. But one of the things they talked about in the podcast was toilet paper, and so I was kind of thinking a, a little bit about this because. Um, man, I've read the articles. I've read the articles. I have posted the videos, and uh, I, you know, to me, I want toilet paper. I'm sorry. Uh, I would rather stock up toilet paper in my in my garage, like you were talking about. I'd, I'd like to have six months or a year if I could have that. I wouldn't have a problem with that because when you think about it, um, if you've read anything about what's going on in Venezuela, one of the first things that were, was gone was toilet paper, uh, tampons for women, um, or pads for women, um, and diapers, you know? And so those things, I mean, like, what do you, what do you, you know, what do you do? I, I don't want to use leaves and rocks and pine cones. I mean, I posted the videos about that kind of stuff. I don't want to necessarily use that if I don't have to, if I can store it up a little bit. So, um, you know, so I started thinking about that and, and what to use if I was really in an SHTF situation. And let's say I was up and I was with my parents up in the country and we didn't have, uh, you know, we ran out of toilet paper or we went through our supply and, you know, what would we do? And so there's a lot of people that have different things. Uh, you know, Dale and Lisa talk a, a little bit about that. But one of the things that I have heard in the past or seen articles on this is um, you have you know old um, towels, old um, bed sheets, old whatever, right? So you're tearing, you're making your own cloth toilet paper, right? And I know this seems very, very gross, uh, but you're, you're using that, you're using that wisely. You have tons of it. You use it and then you stick it into uh, a solution of bleach and water to help clean it up and purify it until you can take it, you know, and boil it and and clean it up as much as possible. 
But then I started thinking about bleach doesn't last that long. You know, what can we do? And I remember an article from um, from from Gay over at Backdoor Survival about using pull shock to purify water and making a bleach solution. And, uh, it, you know, so I started thinking about that. Could that be used? Um, you can store pull shock. Um, it's fairly cheap. A little bit goes a long ways to make solution. Could you do that and make a bleach solution uh, to use it in this kind of situation if you really, really needed it to? Needed to. And so in thinking about that, because I had another article planned for uh, the Friday Archive. Uh, and so those of you who don't know, on Friday I tried to pull an article from the archives of Prepper website. And uh, one that was, you know, was good and, and kind of bring that up and, and share it with you. But uh, so I was going to do another one, but thinking about this, I, I decided to go track this one down and I wanted to read it to you. And so there's a lot of good information there. Gay actually, you know, works through the whole the whole thing, comes up with the solution, comes up with a with a she does a lot of research on it. And then one of the benefits, too, of going to the website, is there's a lot of comments and people uh, responding like um, there's a guy who's a, a chemist. A chemist who also worked for a pool company. And so uh, you can go in and read all that information. So let me read this. This is good for, she does the article for purifying water, but I'm also thinking about making just a bleach solution. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. This, uh, again, comes to us from BackdoorSurvival.com. The title of this article is How to Use Pool Shock to Purify Water. If I were to ask how many of you store liquid bleach along with your other prepping supplies, I'm certain that a good percentage of you would raise your hands. Liquid bleach is a powerful disinfectant and sanitizer, but did you know that there is something better? Something with an almost indefinite shelf life that is inexpensive and takes almost no room to store. That something is the chemical calcium hypochlorite, most commonly known as pool shock. I have known about pool shock for years, but because it is not readily available in my area, I never took the time to search it out so I could stockpile some of my own emergency preps. That has now changed, and today I plan to show you how to use pool shock the easy way, step by step. Why not bleach? Before we start, you may be asking, why not use liquid bleach? There are a few problems with liquid bleach. It takes a lot of room to store bleach, plus the usable shelf life is only six months to a year depending on storage conditions. The folks at Clorox say this, the active ingredient in liquid bleach, sodium hypochlorite, is very sensitive to high heat and freezing, but under normal home storage conditions, it should still perform well for 9 to 12 months. In addition to a limited shelf life, and that's important because you always hear, um, you always hear that, six, that 6 months, but that 9 to 12 months, that's a, that, that's a good one, right? Uh, something good to have or to know. All right, so continuing on. In addition to a limited shelf life, there is another problem. I have had reports from Backdoor Survival readers telling me that in their area, they can only purchase Clorox Ultra, which is concentrated. When I called Clorox to ask how to use concentrated bleach to purify water, they said that it was not intended to be used in that manner, and why would I want to do that anyway? Seriously, their representative actually said that. Pull shock, the boilerplate. When I started doing research for this article, I visited some of the most respected survival and preparedness blogs and forums for background material. After all, pull shock is pull shock and there must be some standard for use, right? With just one exception, all of the sites I visited, including this boilerplate from the EPA, you can use granular calcium hypochlorite to disinfect water. Add and dissolve one heaping teaspoon of high-test granular calcium hypochlorite, approximately one-fourth ounce, for each two gallons of water or five milliliters, approximately seven grams per 7.5 liters of water. The mixture will produce a stock chlorine solution of approximately 500 milligrams per liter. Since the calcium hypochlorite has available chlorine, chlorine equal to 70% of its weight, to disinfect water, add the chlorine solution in the ratio of one part of chlorine solution to each 100 parts of water to be treated. That is roughly equal to adding one pint or 16 ounces of stock chlorine to each 12.5 gallons of water or approximately half liter to 50 liters of water to be disinfected. 
to remove any objectionable chlorine or odor, aerate the disinfected water by pouring it back and forth from one clean container to another. Have your eyes glazed over. And that was a quote. I'm sorry. That was a quote. And again, that was from uh, the EPA. All right. So continuing on with, with what Gay is saying here. Have your eyes glazed over yet? Mine have. Being an accountant, I like to deal in absolutes. So what is this business about one heaping spoonful? Plus, what up with the reference to approximately and roughly? I'm sorry. It's what's up with the references to approximately and roughly. I decided that it was time to do my own testing, and sure enough, each time I measured out a heaping teaspoon, I had different results. They ran the gamut from one and one-fourth teaspoon to two teaspoons. This made my head hurt. Another thing, over and over I read that you should use pull shock that is a minimum of 78 degrees, I'm sorry, 78% calcium hypochlorite with the balance being inert ingredients. Fair enough, but there are two problems with this. First, what you find locally may be 68%, it may be 78%, or it may be something else. I sourced mine from Amazon and it was 73% calcium hypochlorite. Second, the EPA makes no such recommendation or at least none that I could find. They simply say high test, quote unquote. Did I mention this made my head hurt? But there is more. I actually found a couple of sites that said to use one heaping tablespoon of pool shock for each two gallons of water. You know, just because you find something on the internet does not mean it's true. My conclusion. The exact amount and the exact percentage does not matter as long as it is within a reasonable range and close to the EPA standard. I do think it is important that the pool shock does not contain other additives that may or may not be safe even when highly diluted. Other than that, however, it is my belief that the precise percentage of calcium hypochlorite to inner ingredients does not matter as long as it is 68% or higher. For my own use, I settled on one teaspoon of pool shock per gallon of water when making up my stock chlorine solution. Then, to disinfect water, I used three-fourths ounces of my pool shock solution to treat a gallon of water. This makes it easy to calculate how much to use regardless of the size of your container. Again, uh, I'm going to just read that again for those of you that are listening. Uh, and Again, I'm recommending you go to the website. Uh, one teaspoon of pool shock per gallon of water. So that's pretty easy to remember there. Um, Gay has given you some really uh, you know easy numbers there. One teaspoon for one gallon. And then to disinfect water, you're going to use three-fourths ounce of the solution to a gallon of water. All right? So step-by-step, how to purify water using pool shock. The first thing I did was gather my supplies. Notice that I used eye protection goggles and rubber gloves. Other supplies included an empty bleach bottle, funnel, shot glass, and measuring spoons. I verified the size of my stock chlorine solution containers, namely a repurposed bleach bottle. My bottle held 1.42 gallons and I wrote this on the outside with a Sharpie pen. My intent, however, was to only prepare one gallon of stock solution to keep the math simple. After donning my protection, protection gear, I added water to my stock solution bottle, carefully measuring the quantity. I used exactly one gallon of water. I then measured out some pull shock, one level teaspoon to be exact. I put the cap back on the bottle and swished it around a bit. I gave it a sniff test and it definitely smelled bleach-like. The next step was to purify water. I wanted to make drinking water and for me, the smaller the jug, the better. I chose a 64-ounce repurposed apple juice jug. Remember the easy math. The EPA says one part chlorine solution to 100 part water. So the math is 64 divided by 100 equals 0.64 ounces. Keeping things easy... This, that translates into approximately two-thirds of an ounce. Remember, the EPA guidelines used the word approximately all over the place. That was good enough for me to easily measure the proper dilution. I used a mini shot glass that had measurement markings along the side. Be sure to pour your pool, stock, pool shock into your water and not the other way around. The last thing you want is a splash, to splash the solution on yourself on the surrounding surfaces, although you have probably noticed that I did this outdoors. After preparing my newly purified water, I drank up three things. I did not throw up. 
I did not get diarrhea, and I did not get sick or die. I am comfortable with the results, even though the solution I made may have been slightly stronger than the EPA guidelines. Then again, give the vagueness of the EPA guidelines, perhaps my measurements were spot on. Note, I did not find that my water had an objectionable smell or taste. True, it was not sweet tasting like the water coming out of my Royal Berkey, but it was palatable. If your own purified water has an unpleasant odor, simply aerate it by pouring it back and forth between clean containers. The trick applies to any water, not just water treated with pool shock. Label your pool shock solution. This is powerful stuff. Get out your Sharpie and label the jug with as much information as you can. Store it in the same manner you store liquid bleach, up high and away from pets and children and in a location that is cool, dark, and dry. Also, store your unused pool shock safely. Because it is corrosive, I chose a mason jar with a plastic lid. Plus, rather than empty the pool shock into the jar, I sealed the plastic bag it came in with a clip and stuffed the bag inside of the jar. Other handling storage considerations. I contacted the manufacturer of the pool shock I purchased and requested a material safety data sheet on the product. They promptly responded and here is what it said about handling and storage. Keep product tightly sealed in original containers. Store product in a cool, dry, well-ventilated area. Store away from combustible or flammable products. Keep product packaging clean and free of all contamination, including other pool treatment products, acids, organic materials, nitrogen-containing compounds, dry powder fire extinguishers containing monoammonium phosphate, oxidizers, all corrosive liquids, flammable or combustible materials, etc. Do not store products where the average daily temperature exceeds 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Storage above this temperature may result in rapid decomp decomposition, evolution of chlorine gas, and heat sufficient to ignite combustible products. Now that I have been through the process and understand the math, I am comfortable using pool shock to purify water for drinking, hygiene, and sanitation purposes. It is not, however, an excuse for not storing water, nor an excuse for not having a supply of traditional water purification liquids or tabs that are pre-measured and simple to carry with you in bug-out bag, bug bags and emergency kits. As far as I'm concerned, the pool shock I have purchased is reserved for dire emergency use, period. Yes, I feel it is safe, but it is still a powerful chemical solution, as is liquid bleach. I will use it as the water purification method of last resort, and if the time comes, I will be thankful I have it on hand. Disclaimer. I have to say this. I am not a chemist, and I am not an expert. My methods are my own, and they work for me. That being said, if you have any hesitation at all, visit other resources, including the EPA, and make the decision to use pool shock your own, and not just something someone told you to do. Here is a link. Emergency disinfection of drinking water and that I believe links to the EPA. Final word. Everywhere you look you will see a recommendation to store bleach for water purification. I have made that recommendation and so have many if not most of my blogging peers. What you may not have seen is that liquid bleach has a limited shelf life of 6 to 12 months. I fear that this could be leaving a lot of people ill prepared to produce safe potable water in an emergency. This means that a person that began prepping a year ago and does not know to rotate their bleach is already living with false security when it comes to water purification. And what about people that have been prepping longer? As long as pool shock is stored properly, it will have an almost indefinite shelf life plus a small one pound package will treat many thousands of gallons of water, 10,000 to be exact. It can be mixed and used as potable water and as a disinfectant, just like bottled liquid bleach. At the end of the day, do your own research and decide for yourself. All I can say is that for me, the $13 investment was more than worth it for peace of mind down the road. Alright, so um, again, Gay has a lot of links and a lot of uh, pictures. So you see her doing, uh, doing it all out and then especially when she's talking about the Sharpie and writing... Uh, the information on the uh, the bleach bottle. She you know she shows you a picture of what she's done there. So um, I think that's an important. What I would do here is I would probably print this out or definitely if not if you're just you know going to hey I'm going to use this in the future um, write down the directions or you know the the amounts that you need and um, have those readily available just in case you can't get to the internet or you know you know how all that goes. 
Um, I will say this. So um, one of the, the businesses that my dad had before he retired was a pool business. And so we were blessed uh, to, to get a pool uh, before he retired. So uh, I, I am familiar with pool shot. Uh, one thing that I do want to tell you is that it does have corrosive properties. Um, we have a salt pool. So we, we, you know, we use the salt and salt creates its own chlorine and all that it goes to the chlorinator and all that kind of stuff. But from time to time, I have to use pool shock when it rains a lot and, you know, algae starts forming or uh, if for whatever reason I don't catch that my, my chlorinator is going off. And by the time I see, I notice it. I, uh, you know, I, I start seeing some things formed and I need to shock it. Or even like when we've had a big party and there's tons of people in the pool, I, I just like to shock the, the water just because, uh, just to, to make sure it, it's clean. But I will say that it is corrosive. So it, when you have those chemicals, uh, for instance, I have a bathhouse and um, the, uh, the hose that goes from the water to the toilet is it's metal and uh, has become rusty and corroded to the point where I had to turn off the water. And so you don't want to keep it in there. You want to be thinking about that when you when you store this. You want to make sure that you're putting it in a place that it's not going to, especially if it's just kind of sitting there. Um, even when it's not open, because the stuff that I have that I store is not open. It's just sitting in the box. I normally buy like a box of it at a time with the smaller pouches in there, and I just I just buy mine at Walmart. So um, or I get them off of Amazon sometimes too. But uh, it's just it's sitting in the pouches in plastic pouches inside of a box, and even that way it has corroded uh, different things that are in there. So you got to be careful when you when you have that. Uh, make sure you're putting it in a place where it is not going to corrode things in your garage. And uh, I have, I know that there has been stories of people talking about pools where they have had pool they have stored the, their pool chemicals next to their water heater in the garage, and it has you know ruined their water heater. So just FYI for that as you're as you're thinking about that. All right, man, I am looking at the time, and I have gone way over on this one a lot longer than I have done. Uh, any other podcast. So I, that's, I'm going to end it there. That's it for this episode. Uh, if I could ask you for that big favor, just to, you know, get the word out if you could, man. Just let people know that we're doing this podcast. It's a, it's a weekday podcast. We're trying to you know, make something valuable out there for the preparedness community. I know just heard from someone today, um, left a message for me that uh, you know, they're listening to it on their, on their way. And that's uh, SG, I think, from TruePrepper.com. So, hey, man, thanks for, for leaving that on Ed That Matters. And uh, you know, I, I do. I love hearing from you out there. And so uh, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or come to the website, thepreppervebsitepodcast.com. If you want to leave me a message, leave me a message there. That's great. Um, you know, so uh, so I'm definitely I'm, I'm because this is a new. It's like my new baby. I'm 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 hitting that website. I'm there. You know, on a regular basis. But uh, yeah, get the word out there. We've got easy links where you can share it all out on social media. But then word of mouth is is it's always great. So um, that's it for this week. I can't believe that it's it's already been two weeks of the of the podcast. Um, still still working dealing with the allergies down here in Houston. The pollen is so bad. Uh, you can see it on the cars when you you go out in the morning, and it's just it's just nasty. And there's tons of people everywhere that are just coughing and mucus. I mean, it's like mucus factories, man. It's just nasty. But um, I do have to hit the pause button every once in a while to take take a drink. And you might have noticed my uh, you know my my voice cracking every once in a while. So thanks for bearing with me on that. Can't believe it's been two weeks. Uh, I'm really glad. And, and again, um, so thankful for all the subscribers and everybody that's giving me feedback. So thanks so much. So we we will be back next week with uh, with another uh, podcast and other great articles to share. Don't forget that there are a lot of great articles on PrepperWebsite.com. So over the weekend, if you are like, man, i got to get my preparedness fix, go hit there. There's going to be a lot of great articles that we post up there. And uh, visit the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com and this episode notes so you can link to all the, uh, all the articles that are there. All right, guys. Until next time, stay prepped and aware. Peace.